0: There is a distinct phrase that I make every effort to avoid whenever I'm preaching, but uh, I commend if you've ever given a public speech, there is a two word phrase that you should seek to avoid. It is the phrase where you say, in conclusion, in conclusion. Uh, What I've learned is that it's one of the most painful phrases for an audience or a congregation to hear, especially when it's not really the case. Many preachers have been guilty of the sin of saying, in conclusion, only to go on for another 10 or 15 minutes beyond that. Well, the Apostle Paul appears to be doing something similar when he begins this section with the words, Finally, brothers, finally brothers, because we're used to hearing Paul use that phrase and it means this is the end. I'm about to wrap up this letter. Well, Paul is not about to wrap up this letter. This is not the conclusion of his letter to the Philippians, but arguably it is the very core. It is the very center of everything Paul wants to impart to the Christians there. Now, Just uh, for for censoring purposes, uh, this is harsh language. This is harsh first century language. Uh, Paul gives an opening warning in this section, a three-pronged description of those who are trusting in their own religious efforts for salvation. So, and this is key because in every age, There are people who are aiming to get into heaven by their own efforts. In every age and in every part of the world, there are people who imagine that if I only try hard enough, if I only do certain things, then God will save me. I will get into heaven. So Paul opens with a warning against those who think they can author their own salvation. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He refers to them as those who mutilate the flesh. I want you to know that those terms are not randomly unkind, but rather they strike at the very things that Paul's opponents are trusting in. And by way of interest, this is important because if your home's like my home, you have dogs. And we love dogs, and, and if my wife had her way, we would have several dozen living on our property. But you need to know that in the first century, nobody did this. Ali, nobody did this in the first century. No one. Dogs were purely scavengers. They lived off of carcasses of animals who had met their demise. Nobody likes dogs. They are ceremonially unclean because they are constantly accessing dead things. So for those who are trusting in their ceremonial cleanliness to get into heaven, Paul was calling them the worst thing possible. They thought they were ceremonially clean, and Paul wants them to know that they are unclean. So unclean, he refers to them as dogs. Those who trusted in their ability to keep the law were now being called lawbreakers in the worst possible way. They're referred to not simply as lawbreakers, but as evildoers. Not simply people who slip up, but people who do awful things. And then finally, those who are trusting in the right of circumcision. Those who are trusting in the right of circumcision were now being chided by Paul as those who are merely mutilating the flesh. Now these are harsh words to be sure, but what we must glean from this is central. The serious error of trusting in one's own moral fitness for eternal life. This is the great error that Paul wants the early church to avoid. The error of believing that you can author your own salvation. And and the easiest way to figure out, if you understand this, is, is to ask someone or to have someone ask you the question, How do you know you're getting into heaven? How are you sure that when you die, you will spend eternity with Jesus? On what basis will God save you? The worst answer that someone can give to that question is this. Well, I'm trying my hardest to be a really good person. I'm trying to be kind and to do unto others as they've done unto me. I'm trusting that I'm going to get into heaven because I've always wanted and tried to do the right thing. According to the New Testament, that's about the worst answer a person can give. Heaven is not a reward for people who try hard. Heaven is not a reward for those who have done well at becoming good persons. Heaven is for those who earnestly confess in Christ alone my hope is found. And now Paul wants to share that perspective with the Christians living in Philippi. And if your Bibles are open, I would suggest that the best summary statement of this, perhaps the best summary of what it means to be a Christian is found in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, Philippians 3. If you're one of those like me who marks up books and highlights them, do it to these verses. This is an outstanding summary of our faith. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. An outstanding summer of what it means to be a Christian, to be on track for an eternity with God. And I want you to notice the transaction that is taking place there. If you're an accountant, if you're a business person, there's a transaction taking place. There's something going out and there's something coming in. There's a moment where Paul discards something old and he acquires something new. What has Paul previously been clinging to? He tells us in verses 4 and 6 where he details his religious credentials or his religious resume. He says if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says I have more and he lists them circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, Paul had come from an elite tribe. He had come from an elite religion of an elite nation, and he'd gone through all the religious rites and ceremonies and he possessed sufficient zeal and he imagined that the sum of all of this would make him righteous until that day he met Jesus until that day he met Jesus Paul thought the sum of all of his religious credentials were working the ledger in his favor But that all changed when he met Christ. When Paul met Christ, everything that was in his gain column on the ledger now went to the loss column. All gain for Paul was now being considered rubbish. Now the English Standard Version censors the Greek word here, uh, I don't want you to miss the strength of Paul's statement. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek word that the ESV renders as rubbish here, according to Strong's Concordance, is pronounced "skubalon." If Peter Bates was here, he'd probably tell me i mispronounced the Greek word. Probably true. He might be listening to this on the internet soon, so I'll stop right there. But it's the Greek word skoubalon, which the King James Version precisely translates as dung, as manure. So in comparison to Christ, when set next to Christ, everything else is as valuable and as precious as manure. And remember, Paul's not saying, oh, my sin... Oh, the old self, it's manure. He's not saying that. He's saying his religious credentials are done. Paul is saying, my resume, my game column, all the things that I worked for and valued, this is done when set next to Christ. Paul understood that none of the things he had worked so hard for, none of those things, Could make him right with God. What about you? Because some of us have religious credentials. I have some religious credentials, and you have some religious credentials. They differ person to person, but I want you now to consider your list. I'll help you, I'll walk you through it. You don't need to put up your hands, but tick the box in your mind if this applies to you. Did you grow up in Sunday school? Did you grow up, as many of the young children here uh, went into their classes, did you have classes where you were taught the Bible week by week? Did you come from a godly heritage? Did you come from a family where perhaps your mother and father or one parent or a grandparent where you were prayed over, where you were prayed with, where someone in the home where you resided taught you the scriptures? Do you come from such a heritage? Are you committed to leading a morally upright life? Are you the kind of person who's committed to being kind, to being nice? Do you have a theological degree? Did you go to Bible school? A Christian school? Did you go to seminary? Do you have a master's degree in theology or two? Are you an ordained deacon? Are you an elder? Are you an ordained minister? And start to pile your list together. How impressive of a list is it? Maybe you're thinking my list isn't so great. I I didn't have too many of those things you named, Pastor. That's okay. That's okay because none of those things can save you. So even if you went through that checklist and you said, I don't have any of those. It's okay because none of those save you. Or maybe you sat there and you said, I've got all of those. I've got the degrees. I've got the ordination. People say I'm kind. Maybe you had all of those things. None of those things can save you. Not even the sum of them. Christ alone provides what is necessary for salvation. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, I get it. In Christ alone, our hope is found. But pastor, tell me, what are we actually getting from Christ? If if, if I'm making my gain column, my loss column, if I'm discarding something to get something, what do I actually get? What do I actually gain when I gain Christ? Well, according to Philippians 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul says we gain three things in particular when we gain Christ. And the first thing is we gain the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Again, you'll note Paul spent his entire life trying to gain righteousness by his own efforts. He thought he could count on his circumcision, his race, his privilege, his tradition, his zeal, his morality, and he thought the sum of all of those things would make him righteous. Eventually, Paul learned that God's righteousness was not something to be earned but a gift to be received. This is key for those of us who want to spend eternity with Him. Salvation, God's righteousness, is not something to be earned. It is a gift to be received. So Paul says the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the first thing. The second thing Paul expected to gain when he gained Christ was the power of God. The power of God. We see that in verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. So it's not just any kind of power, but the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says, I want that power. You hear a lot of talk in our day. A lot of talk about people trying to reach their personal potential. And you never want to be you know, unkind to someone who says, you know, I'm just, just trying to maximize my personal potential. But that's not something you see in the scriptures. What you don't see in scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ trying to maximize people's personal potential. What you find is him trying to deliver them from their personal potential. Paul was not interested and maximizing personal potential. And I wonder what Paul would think of the myriad of self-help books in our day, each promising to unleash our greatness. I think Paul would say that's entirely wrong-headed. Greatness does not come from within. Greatness comes from Him. If you want to be great... If you want to be strong, if you want to accomplish amazing things, you need the power that rose Jesus from the dead. And that doesn't come from within, it comes from Him. Paul wants Christ's power, the power that made him believe, the power that made him obey, the power that helped him resist sin, the power that helped him overcome temptation, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power over death itself. That's what Paul wanted. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The third thing we gain when we gain Christ is fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. Fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. It would be a strange thing if Paul simply wanted to suffer, if he simply wished that bad things would happen to him. But here we see that Paul wants suffering of a very particular kind. Paul wants to suffer for the gospel. He wants to suffer in a manner similar to how Christ suffered. And this is why you have Paul throughout his letter to the Philippians. He's constantly telling them how joyful he is and urging the Philippians to joy. And we need to remind ourselves again, Paul's in prison here. Paul is hes accompanied by Roman soldiers. We don't know if he's constantly locked up or if he's just under house arrest. But things aren't going very well for Paul. He can't visit the churches. He can't meet with friends or colleagues. Paul is in prison and he's joyful. Because in his imprisonment, he identifies with the sufferings of his Savior. So what does Paul ultimately have in view here? What what is Paul aiming at? He he wants righteousness, he wants power, he wants fellowship with Christ's sufferings. Where is this all going? What's the end game here? Well, in verse 12, he tells us that he he hasn't obtained the end game. He hasn't obtained the thing. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. What's this, Paul? What are you you saying? First you want the righteousness of God, which you have. Then you want to gain the power of Christ. Then you want fellowship with His sufferings. What else do you want, Paul? I hear Paul saying, I want to get what I was gotten to get. What? I want to obtain what the Lord redeemed me to give me. What am I saying here? I'm saying that Christ Jesus made Paul his own to give him something. And that Christ Jesus made us his own to give us something that is god had a purpose he had an end game in mind when he saves us what is the end game well we're going to cheat a bit we're going to look at romans 8 verse 29 in romans 8:29 paul writes for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed ...to the image of His Son. Why were you saved? Foreknown, predestined... ...to be made like whom? Christ. You and I were made to be like Christ. We were redeemed to be made like Christ. Paul is saying, that's what I was taken hold of... And now that's what I want to take hold of. I was saved to become like Christ one day. And in the meantime, this is what I pursue. Christlikeness. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I have not become Christ-like yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus what's the goal christ-likeness well what's the prize then christ-likeness it's the same thing the goal is the prize Ask an Olympic athlete, what's your goal? What are you aiming at this Olympics? To win the gold. Well, what's the prize? The gold medal. The goal and the prize are the same thing. Verse 14 finishes. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. When we are called up to heaven, we get something. When you die and go to heaven, you get something. You get Christ-likeness. That's what you are greeted with in eternity. And in the meantime, Christ-likeness is your primary pursuit and goal. Because like Paul, we're not yet at the finish line. We have not become Christ-like yet. We get that works in progress. What remains to be seen, however, is whether you and I will pursue Christ's likeness with the rigor that Paul did. Because this is what I fear separates those who attend church services like this Sunday by Sunday, is that there are some people who will read a verse like Philippians 1.6, The verse that says, He who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Some people read that and they say, You know, God is going to set me straight in the end. He's going to work it all out, so I'm not going to stress right now about being like Jesus. You can stress about being like Jesus. I'm not going to, because He's going to work it all out in the end. That's not the way we ought to be thinking. We need to resist that kind of attitude. Christ-like perfection may be very, very far off. But progress in Christ-likeness is within our reach. And this is the good news, because some of you are hearing, Oh, I'm so far from Christ-likeness, it's so far off, I'm, I'm not going to be fully like Him in this lifetime, and it's discouraging. But the other side of that is that progress in that pursuit is well within your reach. Progress in Christ's likeness is within reach. And that inspires Paul to strive. And he strives in such a way that he gives an analogy of an athlete pressing forward in a race. Paul's essentially saying, You want an idea what it's like to go after Christ's likeness? Picture an athlete in a race. Now, some of you who know me well know that it's been a very, very long time since I've competed in any sort of race. Uh, this is not the sort of aspiration I have at this stage in my life, although my wife tells me that she's at the same stage and she races all of the time. But setting that aside, I don't have any recent first hand experience in competing in any races. But I can tell you that I've recently watched a lot of races. Because many of you know that my teenage daughter is a competitive swimmer. So I get to watch people race all of the time. Can I ask you, have you ever seen a photograph of a competitive swimmer in the middle of a race? I mean, it's, it's, it's not the most flattering thing in the world. It's you. It's like, I mean, it's, it's not something you want to pin up in the front hall. It's not a flattering thing. They're in obvious discomfort when they're racing. They're not in a good place when they're pushing as hard as they are. It's a, it's a look of complete determination when they're swimming. Total commitment to what they're doing. They're in all kinds of pain and discomfort, and they keep pushing. Why? they want the prize they want the prize and you will watch competitors in the pool and on the track they will push through great pain because they want the prize so I need to ask this morning how hard are you willing to push for the upward prize of Jesus Christ and his likeness What kind of discomfort are you willing to put yourself through? What kind of strain are you willing to engage in order to make progress in Christ's likeness? Because God saved you for the purpose of making you like His Son. And the good news is that in glory, in heaven, you will be like Jesus... And He will be your prize. But until then, until then, I urge you to strain and to push and to sacrifice and to give of yourself so that you may progress in becoming like Christ. There are a thousand things a Christian can do in this life. A thousand and one things the church can be doing. But if you do one thing well, the rest will follow. Be like Jesus. Conform to His image. Pursue trust with all that you have. Amen.